0: I thought <clears throat> I would give those who, have, who are a little bit shy the opportunity to write questions, but I got enough for a book. <laughs> so what I've done <clears throat> is kind of grouped them into several packets of uh, uh, questions that have a similar answer. <clears throat> so I'd like to thank you all for putting your thoughts down on paper, taking precious time away from your practice to, <laughs> to enable me to have something to do today. <clears throat> Hopefully the answers will be uh, helpful to your practice. I have also selectively edited out some of the questions. Um, First, in your talks about happiness, you did not mention such things as reciprocated love, meaningful work, good health, pleasant surroundings, family and friends, prosperity, etc. Where do these fit in the scheme of things, if at all? And a similar question, or a related question, I have heard that Burma is an oppressive state in which to live, mass arrests, torture, etc. Yet you describe a happy, gentle existence. Could you reconcile the two understandings? I think our common understanding, and maybe an understanding that we haven't looked too deeply into, is that if we can get more, have more, do more, become more, know more, that somehow we're going to be happier. That some accumulation of uh, comfortable experience, uh, or exciting experience, or pleasant surroundings, if we can get enough and string them along frequently enough, that somehow that equals or will result in happiness. And I think in my talks on happiness, the series which I'm in about the middle of, Um, I have been pointing to some of the underlying um, understandings or foundations for increasing happiness in our lives and actually probably changing our understanding of what happiness is and how it might be achieved. Of course, if we have meaningful work, if we have uh, comfortable surroundings, if we have good health, if we have uh, a harmonious family. These do uh, contribute to happiness, to a sense of well-being, to a sense of contentment and peace. However, a lot of us in America or in the West who have a lot of things, have a lot of work, have a lot of money, are not particularly happy. And it's not the actual possession or uh, participation in such things that creates happiness so much as our relationship to it and our relationship to others around us. And that, I think, is really the distinctive difference That I noticed in Burma. These people live extremely poorly by our standards, by UN rating scheme. I think Burma is now fourth poorest country in the world. That's right down there with Bangladesh and a couple of African uh, places that are really, really poor. You know, where the uh, average annual income is a couple of hundred dollars. What some of us, myself excluded, might make in a day. And yet their relationship to what they have, I think, is very different than um, a lot of our relationships to what we have, in that they really have a strong appreciation for, and understanding of, and practice of, generosity. They really do share what they have with their extended family and with uh, their um, community. And I think that they derive a lot of their happiness from that. From their understanding and, and practice of generosity, along with uh, devotion, meditation, uh, and, and study of, of the Dhamma. And they do have a politically repressive um, and economically depressed uh, culture and they do suffer with that extremely i mean i was there in 88 when they had a a political uprising which was far larger and longer than tiananmen square and the uh, governmental response to it was equally far greater than what happened in china and the people suffered tremendously with it and yet still uh, even with that understanding that they do not have politically and economically what others have, they still can find happiness in what they do have in their relationships to it. They do also have um, desire And craving and wish for more, like most of us do. And yet, their sense of struggle to get that is less frenetic and less obsessive, apparently, than, I mean, apparently, by what I saw, than many of us in America. And so I think that the happiness I am pointing to that I experienced among the Burmese is really a um, subtler and maybe a more durable happiness than many of us um, struggle to get. What are the signs of samadhi that Joseph mentioned in his talk a couple nights ago, I think, and maybe this morning? What are they, and can you expand on them? And a related question is, would you clarify the term energy as opposed to effort, and its relationship to concentration, the balance that's required between these two factors of mind? Where does mindfulness fit in? Is it also needed for good clarity? And is mindfulness separate and different from the other two? Joseph mentioned the signs of samadhi, and Stephen has been speaking about uh, the different powers of mind, I think he calls them, which are confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these also are, as Joseph was talking last night, the controlling faculties of mind. As we practice, we develop all of these factors to a controlling power so that they really guide the mind in its stream of awareness throughout the day. The relationship between these five factors of mind is that they are the cause, they have a cause-effect relationship, such that when we have some level of confidence, true genuine confidence, then we are willing and able to uh, exert some energy in the pursuit of or in the goal or endeavor to wake up. As we make effort, as we remind ourselves what we're doing based on our confidence and understanding, then we do become more mindful. We do make the effort to be present, to acknowledge our experience in the moment, to connect our attention to and to sustain our attention on the experience, resulting in awareness or knowing of it. This is mindfulness. Being aware of the present experience. As we continue, as we develop the ability to remember more frequently. And mindfulness is remembering. That's one of the characteristics of mindfulness, is to remember. And it's to remember to be present. It's not to remember the past, necessarily, but it's to remember, oh, here I am. Here it is. It's only happening now. As we develop momentum to remember with greater frequency, greater continuity, it's as if we collect the mind. You know, the mind is scattered and fragmented and compartmentalized in innumerable different directions and places. And each time we're spaced out and come to and remember. Note this. Oh. It's as if we collect a piece of our mind from that memory, that plan, that fantasy, that involved state of mind that we were blind to. It's as if we collect a piece of mind from that and collect it, pack it together into the present moment and continue on. When we space out, come to again, oh, remembering. It's as if we collect, that little piece of mind, packing together. In time we collect, concentrate, and um, bring the mind together. This is concentration. That degree of concentration is the result of continuity of mindfulness. As we collect the mind, as the mind becomes more powerful, as it is less fragmented, less compartmentalized, and as we see more of where the mind goes, we begin to notice more details of our experience. We're still watching the primary objects, secondary objects, experiences in the body, experiences in the mind, but we're noticing in greater detail, greater richness the texture of our experience, so that pain isn't just this massive field of discomfort down here somewhere. It becomes a fluxing, dynamic, tapestry of changing phenomena. The collected mind sees more details of it. So too with mental experience. Now when we find ourselves lost in a fantasy, It's a much richer fantasy. (laughs) It's got more details. We see more of the subtleties of it. Memories come in living color. Not just a faint memory, but in vivid, uh, three-dimensional, a lot more detail. We know more. We see more with the concentrated mind. We understand more of what's actually going on. So this is the relationship between these different faculties of mind. The energy that is required is the energy to remember, to be present. That's all. It's not so much energy that we need it's the precision with which we apply it. Applying our attention to the present moment. What is it? So we don't need to create a lot of effort and struggle and uh, sweating and swearing and you know, striving to get something, to do something, to see something that isn't there but rather just to remember to acknowledge the present moment. When these factors mature and come into some balance, we have an experience of clarity, understanding, a sense of ease in practice, maybe even um, enjoying practice, maybe a sense of really understanding what it's all about now, feeling tranquil, feeling uh, not bothered by any of the hindrances. This is samadhi. And when we have that experience, for a moment, for an hour, maybe even for a day, we should notice or acknowledge what the qualities of that experience are. Not just to let a period of good practice, whether it's walking or sitting or general activities, not to just let it go by unacknowledged, but to also acknowledge, well, what, what's, what are the qualities that make up this experience of good practice? What's my energy level? What's my motivation? What's the... um, How does the body feel? And so we really scan this experience of good concentration, good samadhi, and we just acknowledge it to ourselves. Oh, I'm really such-and-such, or I feel such-and-such. I'm not struggling. I'm letting go. I'm dropping back. I'm feeling appreciative Etc., etc., etc. These are the signs of samadhi. Recognize them so that when you find yourself in a period of practice which is not so good, you can recall those signs of samadhi and say, hey, good samadhi, good mindfulness, good practice was such and such. Now I'm such and such. Maybe I should adjust a little bit. Maybe I need a little more energy. Maybe I need to settle back a little bit. Maybe I need to... um, whatever. With the body, with the mind. So we use these signs of good practice to inform our adjustments when we're having a difficult time. And this is skillful use of our understanding of our own practice. So that's the Yeah, please. Uh, how how do you keep that process from becoming a striving to change what's really occurring? Yeah. It takes recognition and acceptance of any difficult experience before we can uh, have the understanding of how our practice is off. So that when we do discover that practice is off for some reason, we're struggling, we're resisting, we're whatever, and we recognize it, and we say, okay, this is the way it is often in that very moment of recognition and acceptance of what's going on, we realize, oh, I'm not being... whatever. And it can be a remembrance or a recognition of what is needed to bring the mind into balance in that very moment. And often it's around these different factors of mind. But not limited to these five factors of mind. Whatever signs of good practice you discover about yourself, acknowledge them and use them again as a skillful tool, just like noting is a skillful tool. The three different speeds of walking are skillful tools. Uh, Noting intention is a skillful tool. Recognizing your own signs of samadhi is a skillful tool to be used when needed and to be let go of when not needed. Wow, time goes quickly, and there's still lots of questions. Um, If there's no self, why does it want so much attention? And why does it make up stories about itself? And who's doing that anyway? This is a classic question. I think this this note gets recycled every year. Lately, these words from an old Linda Ronstadt song have been coming up frequently. You're no good, you're no good, you're no good, you're no earthly good. During sitting and walking. I hear them as directed to me, not some other person. A song my self-critic sings to me. Somehow, noting hearing, hearing seems inadequate to deal with such a strongly heard and powerfully negative message. Have you ever had something like this come up in your practice? If so, how have you dealt with it?" There are a couple more questions that are similar. It occurred to me that three or four generations from now, most of us will not be remembered. However, a tiny fraction do become household names like Ben Franklin, Joe DiMaggio, Van Gogh, William Blake. (laughs) Don't we carry around an underlying assumption of immortality? One more. Is the psychological term ego equivalent to the Buddhist phrase attached self? Somehow, these are all related. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I am an avid deadhead. And of course, I don't get Linda Ronstadt songs. I get Grateful Dead songs. And yes, they come up all the time. Interestingly though, very interestingly, often the lyrics that are playing through the mind unconsciously, when I become aware of them, are pointing directly to my experience that's going unnoted. Have you noticed? You might just check that out. But all of these questions are talking about or asking the question about, what is this thing that we call I? Is it ego? Is it attached self? If there's no self, what is it? And what is, what is it that we think or may be assuming is immortal? One note about using the word ego. Ego is a word used in Western psychological traditions, with a very specific meaning. The popular usage of ego is not comprehensive, nor sometimes accurate. So it's very difficult to know what we're talking about when we say ego. And to compare that word with The Buddhist words of atta or anatta or any other Pali terms is difficult, if not impossible. So I'm of the school that says, let's not use Western psychological terms. Let's use the best translations we can come up with for Pali words, Buddhist words, and not just assume that they are equivalent to what Western psychology is talking about. There's a whole field of Western psychology called self-psychology which talks about the development of a self and it's very compatible with the (laughs) non-self doctrine of Buddhism. And so if you just take the word self and non-self you're going to be totally confused. So it's best to uh, point more directly to the experience which these questions are asking about, we do have a sense of I. We do have a sense of self. And when we look closely at that in practice, we see that it is not very solid. It is not very stable. What do we think of as I? For the most part, I is a series or a sequence of relationships. Relationships to the body, relationships to uh, the external world, relationships to others, relationships to knowledge or thought, And that relationship, or those relationships habituated over time, creates an enduring sense of I, me, who I am, what I do, how I think, what I believe. And that sense of self is what we confront by paying attention to our momentary experience. And we discover that there are many experiences in the mind and in the body which we don't claim. Which we have a hard time acknowledging, experiencing. Because they don't fit our image of I. Whether it's fantasies that I wouldn't have. Fears that I don't have. joys or sorrows that I've never yet experienced, they somehow don't fit our sense of who we are, and yet we notice them. And so the practice of opening to a wider experience, a wider range of physical and mental stuff, directly confronts the sense of who we are. And it's painful. It's painful to let go of who we think we are. And that may be what this question about immortality is asking or referring to. Do we have an assumption of immortality? Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Because how can we imagine, how can we accept the non-existence of I. What is that? We can't imagine. We don't know what that is. Maybe death. Maybe. And yet none of us know where that takes us. And so we can't, we can't consciously choose to let go of a sense of I. Or a limitation of I. But in practice as the concentration of the mind and the clarity with which we see experience unfolding develops, we not only know through belief or hope or faith, but we really see that this sense of I is a fleeting thing, changing in every moment. And in time, the solidity of who we think we are wears away. In every case, though, as we notice our experience, and whether it's Linda Ronstadt songs or something else, if we stay with the present experience, we will see how our relationship to it changes. How the I doesn't exist from one moment to the next. Maybe a new one is created. A new relationship, a new sense of myself is created in the next moment. But it's only through really careful noting and noticing That we um, intuitively understand that. As for music, just noting hearing, hearing obviously isn't going to do it because the radio is really loud in there sometimes. But when the balance between the subjective experience of that music and the pleasure and the the rhythm and whatnot of it, when the subjective experience of that is balanced with the objective realization or recognition of what it is, it's hearing, it's pleasant, it's whatever the experience is, then we aren't feeding it. We aren't feeding that sense of, in this case, I'm no good, or in some other case, I'm great. And we're just noticing that it's just hearing. It's just a pleasant experience that's happening. And it will not last forever. yeah 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 if we stop being averse, often it will uh leave more gently um gee, a lot of good ones um A lot of questions about wanting and desire, but a series of questions on what are we doing here in a, in, a, in a broader scope. One question, could you talk more about purification? What is it? How does it happen? I'm having trouble relating anything spiritual to looking at details of pressure and hardness. a related question. You told a story about someone asking Deepama if she had seen different realms and her saying she had. Obviously an explanation for this was they were in her mind, referring to different uh, realms of experience or existence. But this seems a little too pat. Could you say more about these realms? Are they places, mind states, continually arising and passing away as with the human realm? It seemed like it's permanently living in a particular mind state, Michelle gave the quote attributed to the Buddha of oh, house builder, you have been seen, uh, your rafters have been broken, etc." My mind has reached the unconditioned. Can you explain that line? Okay. My mind has reached the unconditioned. And then there's a question about stages of enlightenment. Could you say more about the second stage of enlightenment? And I've heard that a big piece of greed, hatred, and delusion drops away. But it seems like big pieces are dropping away all the time. Is the opening to the unconditioned, or Nibbana, as powerful at second stage as at first? And how does one know? I want to speak a little bit about a macroscopic view of what we're doing here. We spend a lot of time and a lot of instruction, a lot of effort getting into the microscopic stuff of momentary arising and passing away. A larger view of the understanding of what we're doing is, as this question asked, is really purifying our mind. And the Buddha's path, uh, the Eightfold Path, really is a system for purifying our mind. There are three trainings in the Eightfold Path. There's the training in morality, which is the purification of our speech and our physical actions, our behavior, as a foundation for establishing harmonious relationships with others and within ourselves so that we don't unnecessarily disturb our own peace of mind through unskillful, and I'll use the word impure, speech and behavior. That's the foundation for the purification of mind. The first was the purification of behavior. The second is the purification of mind, and I spoke about this throughout a couple of talks, where I talked about the pure mind. The mind that is unobscured, unhindered by the classical hindrances. And the mind, or consciousness, is knowing. When the hindrances are not present, when the mind, when the knowing quality is unobscured, we see things clearly. we see our misunderstandings clearly and we see our correct understandings clearly. Which leads us to the third training in the Buddhist path of awakening. The third training is the purification of our views and understanding. And so really the Buddhist path is three levels of purification, three trainings to purify different aspects of our being. Speech and physical behavior, purifying the mind, and with the purified mind, purifying our understanding. Correcting our misperceptions, our misunderstandings of who and what we are. And here is where the level of noting pressure and hardness and tingling and thoughts and whatnot comes into play. Because our primary misunderstanding is that we are someone here. A self, an I. And it's through the really close, clear recognition of what this experience is on a moment-to-moment basis that we are able to purify our understanding of what this mind-body process is. And through noticing the physical uh, momentary arisings of psychophysical phenomena, we correct our understanding or we at least challenge our wrong assumptions. It happens in this way, noticing pressure and hardness and tightness and tension and vibrating and thoughts and feelings and emotions is the first layer, so to speak, of knowledge and understanding that we get about this mind-body process. In time, we get a very refined and accurate catalog, so to speak, of all that we experience all that we are, and we see this mind-body called Steve is this catalog full of physical and mental experience. And when we get familiar with that level of experience and we're living with that understanding of who and what we are, then we start seeing a deeper level to what's going on. We start noticing very distinctly the impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature, and the insubstantiality of all phenomena, where the fascination with, is this pressure or hardness, leaves, and the recognition of its impermanence and inability to provide us any security, and its non-reference to a solid sense of self. It's when that insight or that knowledge becomes paramount or preeminent. One of the insights that comes when seeing the characteristics like that is that everything that's happening we say is a Dhamma. It's an experience known by another Dhamma. And the sense of I really goes out the window. And it doesn't, it's not a struggle to sit with whatever is arising and know that it is not me. And just in time and in familiarity and getting comfortable with that relationship to that understanding, gradually the mind opens to further knowledge of what this process is. And there are semi-distinctive layers or levels of opening One of which is the opening to the unconditioned. Opening to an experience, maybe an experience. Opening to something, maybe not even something. Opening to the unconditioned. And I use all that, I use all that just because the unconditioned is undescribable. It can't be described. It has no physical characteristics, it has no mental characteristics. It has no color, no shape, no time. It is ineffable, cannot be described. And yet, it exists. And the mind can open to it. And the texts say that the opening to the unconditioned is a powerful moment of consciousness that uproots from the mind different tendencies that we have. And the first opening to the unconditioned permanently uproots the belief in an I, a sense of permanent thing in here that it's all happening to. So that that belief never rearises again in that mind, in that stream of consciousness. That is a powerful opening to wisdom, beyond words. Powerful, powerful opening. There are subsequent openings to the unconditioned at even greater levels of uh, seeing, in which more tenacious wrong views are uprooted. Wrong understandings are uprooted, including uh, desire for sensual experience, aversion to anything. Get totally uprooted from the mind, so that the mind then would dwell without ever feeling aversion. This is a powerful insight, (laughs) not to be minimized. And certainly to be uh, acknowledged. And in time, a, another level of opening to the unconditioned um, uproots any every tendency of the mind to be confused. To not understand correctly what this mind is all about. And that's supposedly those who are are fully enlightened, whatever that means. And the the text can only say, well, they have no more desire or aversion, no wrong understanding, no restlessness, no sleepiness, and no ignorance. We, now let's, practicing here, we can get a glimpse of that. We can get a taste of that. When the hindrances are put away and we're present with our experience and just being with experience, without aversion, without commenting, without interpretation, we get a sense, a taste of what the mind, freed of confusion and hindrances and obstructions, is like. For us, we may maintain it for a minute, or two, or five, an hour. Recognize it. Recognize when your practice is really good, even if it's just for the first five minutes of the sitting. It's really important to acknowledge that five minutes. In time, we will uproot the tendencies to fall away from that state of mind in time. Tea time. Thank you for the questions. I, I, I really wish I could get to more of them. There's some fantastic questions here, and probably some interesting answers, but we'll have more opportunities in the future to ask and answer. So thank you.